0: Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes. I'm Katie Balls, your host. Coming up on the show. Vladimir Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons against the West if he doesn't get what he wants in Ukraine. But would he really do it? I'll speak to Paul Wood and Peter Hitchens. Putin isn't just having trouble abroad. He's being challenged domestically too. Lisa Hasseldine will speak to a Russian politician who openly says he wants Putin to go. Liz Truss this week defended bankers' bonuses and said that she's happy to be unpopular if it gets Britain's economy moving. I'll speak to James for and Isabel Hardman about why this is such a good idea. Violence between Hindus and Muslims has flared up in the Midlands. Why? I'll speak to John Connolly. And finally, might Liz Truss's plan to pay for Britain's gas bills cost far less than first thought? I'll be joined by Kate Andrews, who will talk us through the economics. This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. And while we have you here, why not subscribe to our YouTube channel too? Click the red subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. In an address to the Russian people on Wednesday, Vladimir Putin said he was calling up army reservists to serve in Ukraine. He also said that if pushed, Russia would use nuclear weapons against the West. Will the mobilisation make a difference? And how seriously should we take those threats? Paul Wood writes this week's cover piece about Putin's options. He joins me now alongside the journalist Peter Hitchens. Paul, in the magazine this week, you write that Putin is cornered. What has brought us to this point?
1: Well, he miscalculated. They thought they would take Ukraine in a matter of days. In fact, that was their strategy, a kind of Russian version of shock and awe, where they uh, put parachute uh, paratroops on the ground at the airport outside Kiev. They sent uh, tanks towards the capital. They thought the Ukrainian government would just crumple, that people would panic. And a lot of the horrific stories we're seeing about war crimes appear to have been part of Russian strategy to terrify people. Um, there's a thousand bodies turned up uh, north of Kiev, another several hundred south of Kiev. This all seems to have been strategy. But what Putin did not reckon on was that he had a hollow army. And I spoke to um, various people who have kept very close tabs on this operation. Uh, and I was hearing stories um armoured vehicles with ball tyres, tanks running out of fuel. Uh, The Twitter account of this Russian paratroop, I quote in the piece, talks about going into um, basic training with rusty rifles, a few rounds of ammunition for battle, not enough food, uh, no beds in the barracks. So um, this is why he's losing. And of course, the Ukrainians are fighting for their own territory in their own land. And this is why, too, throwing another 300,000 troops uh, into the battle, Um, is not really going to help him. Um, That's why he's cornered, and that's why we're hearing hearing these increasingly desperate uh, statements from Russian officials bringing nuclear weapons into the equation.
0: Peter, Paul mentions um, some of the problems that Russian soldiers have experienced, some of that also involves uh, faulty equipment or not working as it should do. How much do you think there's this uh, Russian failings, and how much is actually Ukrainian success in terms of tactics and ploys?
2: Well, uh, here's the great, the great paradox of this controversy. For many years, I've been saying this claim that Russia is about to invade the, the old Warsaw Pact countries and the Baltic states uh, was empty because the Russian armed forces were actually still a shambles. Uh, and I got a fair amount of derision from that. And now the people who are saying, oh, look, uh, the Ukrainians have the Russians on the run, which they may do, uh, won't accept that, that this point has actually now been proved that the Russian, the huge Russian threat, which they confected over a quarter of a century, turns out to be largely empty. And I think people should pay more attention to this development. As for the rest of it, I have never uh, so much as put on a, 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 a cadet uniform at school or fired a rifle, so my ability to, to comment on Military matters is pretty limited. I know other people don't let these disadvantages get in their way, uh, but I have very little idea of what's actually going on militarily or how it will work out. Uh, I think people should be careful. I certainly think that after, I think the the great mistake that most people made up until February was to assume that Putin was a rational actor. And then when he invaded, it, it was obvious to everybody, whatever side they were on in this, that he is not a rational actor. So we have to take seriously this, uh, the, this talk of, of nuclear weapons and to understand that we're probably at greater risk of nuclear war than at any time, really, since the invention of, of nuclear weapons, because this isn't like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the, the huge weapons are un, under the control of centralized powers something could actually happen on a battlefield uh, from which other things could spread to who knows what end. I I think this is one of the most frightening circumstances I've experienced in my entire life.
0: Paul, do you agree with that? Headless trust the new prime minister to be pretty dismissive of um, Putin's nuclear threats this week. Um, But do you think Peter has a point here that that really you just do not know what uh, the Russian president is going to do?
1: Peter's absolutely right. This is a terrifying moment we have to hope that Putin retains some rationality, or the people around him do, because otherwise the doctrine of mutually assured destruction just doesn't work anymore. Uh, in the past, when Putin has given some quite measured statements about Russia's nuclear doctrine, he said that they would never initiate a nuclear attack. Uh, they would never um, do what the West did in, in the view of many immorally for many years and have a policy of first strike, not just hitting first, but hitting with such a massive wave of nuclear missiles that you destroy any offensive capability in your enemy. Um, And he has said it would be the end of civilization if there was a nuclear war, all very rational things. Now we have him talking about nuclear blackmail by NATO, defining these people's republics uh, formerly in Ukraine, still according to international law in Ukraine, as part of Mother Russia, and saying that all necessary means will be used to defend Mother Russia, you have to hope, as Liz Truss clearly does, that he is bluffing and that because he's losing the conventional war, uh, he must turn to other things, um, principally the idea that he might use a nuclear weapon, not necessarily a missile from Siberia to London, but a tactical nuke of which Russia has many. Now, we have to be a little bit cautious. American officials, of anonymous officials have told the New York Times they don't see these tactical nuclear weapons being moved into Ukraine yet. Uh, but it would be very easy for them to do that. And if you look at the Russian media, a lot of what we're seeing is just crazy. Uh, the people who you presume speak for the Kremlin, like the editor-in-chief of Russia Today, are saying either we win the Donbass back and solidify our victory on the ground or its nuclear war with NATO. There is no third option. Of course, we are right to be terrified.
0: And Peter, on that, I mean, there are some who say, oh, don't worry about nuclear war because were Putin to really try and do it, his generals, those around him, would not let him go through with that. Um, But do you find that argument at all convincing or reassuring?
2: No, because we know so little about the internal politics of Russian government and and military command and control. I don't know what what the procedure would actually be. Uh, if anybody wanted to stop the president. The other thing we have to understand, I I think a lot of people fantasize that if Putin fell, he'd be replaced by some sort of liberal democrat. Uh, That is not very likely. Uh, The the likelihood is if he falls, he'll be replaced by somebody immeasurably worse. And I I think the the pressure which he has been under from extreme Russian nationalists is something we haven't really... Uh, fully understood and they are the people who would benefit most from his departure so the idea that it would be it's, it's a good idea to, to destroy his forces and bring him down seems to me to be enormously and dangerously short-sighted again who, who wants a major nuclear power run by maniacs unknown to us uh, possibly crazier than anybody outside North Korea and even more crazy? it's, it's very strange the the, the sort of dreamtime way, uh, in which many Western commentators and politicians approach this as if it isn't really happening on this planet, but it's a sort of video game in which they, they, they can score triumphs and make rousing speeches. This is an actual war on continental Europe which could, within weeks, uh, go nuclear. And I just don't see any serious attempt by anybody to understand the, 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 the and I'm using the word here in its proper sense, the enormity of this, or to recognise the very, very serious need to find some way of bringing an end to the conflict which will, which will be permanent and effective. That's what we should have been doing from the start. It was always a fantastically dangerous war. Now it's become even more so.
0: Now, in terms, I want to get to that point, which is uh, how can this all play out? How could it end? But just before we do, Paul, do you agree with that in the sense of um, after Putin, actually what comes after Putin could be worse?
1: either an extreme nationalist or somebody like Nikolai Patrichev, who uh, runs the Russian National Security Council, but like Putin, used to run the Internal Security Service, the FSB, and is equally as dark and as sinister a character as Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, we're, we're playing uh, roulette here, aren't we, with um, with the fate of the world, as Peter says, enormity is the right word. So the question is, what do we do about that? Uh, one very logical response is to press the Ukrainians' um, to go to peace talks, and to give up some of their territory. I speak regularly to Ukrainian officials. They are not going to do that. Uh, They want not only to retake uh, these people's republics, and let's not forget that the Russians are claiming some 20% of Ukrainian territory now, if you include Crimea. But the Ukrainians want to go on to Crimea itself, and I think Peter's been to Crimea several times. Uh, I have as well. I think most people in Crimea want to be in Russia. They're Russian speakers. It only was handed to... Um, Ukraine by Khrushchev in the 1950s. But the Ukrainians want it back, and they now feel they have the upper hand. Of course, they have the upper hand because of weapons supplied by the United States principally, but also Britain and others. And the US has been trying to calibrate this very carefully. There is a debate in the US now about whether to give the Ukrainians some quite powerful long-range missiles. The Ukrainians say they need these because Putin, uh, losing with his infantry, is now hitting Ukrainian infrastructure with his own long-range missiles, conventional missiles, taking out things like power stations. Ukrainians say this has got to stop. Um, it is in itself a war crime. But the concern is that they would then start dropping long-range missiles supplied by the US on Russia itself. An attack on Mother Russia, which Putin was saying on Wednesday, would be treated with the utmost seriousness. Um, Part of the problem here is that we always treat every crisis like Munich. Uh, If we don't stand up to this dictator, Saddam, uh, the Korean leader, then we will see more and more territory gobbled up. Well, uh, for once, you have a crisis that does, in fact, look like Munich. I think if Putin had not been stopped by the Ukrainians, he would have looked at the Baltic states. He might have looked elsewhere. But now we are at uh, a very, very fine point of judgment. And I don't know how um, people like Liz Truss or President Biden are going to solve this but they have to calibrate their response not to put any more pressure on vladimir putin so that he does do something crazy because we don't know the state of mind of this man
0: though on that point liz Truss did say this as foreign secretary she is now prime minister but um, when she was in the foreign office she, she also argued that uh, the ukrainians really should be able to push uh, russia from crimea and um, so obviously pre the february invasion um, Peter, do you think then if, if the Western leaders are currently obviously uh, supporting Ukraine and suggesting that Ukraine can decide uh, whether to go into peace talks and they are not, um, it's really hard to see how this uh, ends without uh, one side claiming victory, isn't it?
2: Oh, come on. If the United States wanted to end this war, it would end tomorrow. Uh, Ukraine's supposed uh, victories and all the rest of it, as we do not know and probably will not find out for years exactly how great the direct Western involvement in, in Ukrainian military performance has been. but if the United States decided it wanted to end this war, it could end it. The question is what it should, how it should end. It isn't fundamentally about territory, in my view. It's, it's always been about the pivotal position of Ukraine. And if, if, if Ukraine joins a Western military alliance, it transforms European and to some extent global politics and makes Russia a much diminished power. And that's, that's the, the real origin of this. My own view is you could end this quite easily with with an an actual return of Crimea to Ukraine provided Ukraine was prepared to accept a federal structure in which its Russian-speaking population were treated rather better than they have been. Uh, I think that would be the obvious way out of it which wouldn't involve any surrender of territory and therefore surrender of principle which ought to be seriously pursued. Uh, the U- Ukraine could be, could be delighted by the return of Crimea. R- Russia would then get a Ukraine, which is unlikely uh, to pursue these fantasies of being a, a, a member of a Western military alliance. And we, we might then go back to something approaching stability. But I'm just not sure whether the people in charge of policy in Washington actually want that. Uh, and this is what scares me. I, on, the, on the issue of Munich, uh, in 1965, Lyndon Johnson, thought seriously about pulling American support away from the South Vietnamese government and getting out of Vietnam. And he confided to his friends. The reason he didn't do it was he was afraid of being called a Neville Chamberlain and, he, uh, and afraid of, of, of being told he'd committed a Munich. This ridiculous, is trope the word? This ridiculous idea that all foreign crises are a, are a repeat of, of September 1938 is so ridiculous and so wrong. And the whole, the whole use of the word appeasement Appeasement simply means a bit of diplomacy I don't like. Churchill appeased Stalin and Roosevelt appeased Stalin at Yalta. Uh, the, the British government, with, under strong American pressure, appeased the Irish Republican army in Belfast in 1998. Israel is under constant pressure to appease the Arab world by land for peace. And these things are not called appeasement because everybody approves of them. Sometimes you have to reach agreements because powers exist and countries exist. And unless you want to have a situation of permanent war and horror, you have to settle for that.
0: Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Paul. Putin isn't just struggling abroad. He's having trouble at home, too. Lisa Hasseldine, The Spectator's assistant online editor, writes in this week's magazine about the politicians who are speaking out against the Russian leader. Earlier, she spoke to Dmitry Baltrikov in Russian.
3: Thank you very much, Katie. Today I am joined by Dmitry Boltrokov, one of the local councillors in a district of St Petersburg, who voted to send a letter to the State Duma of Russia calling on them to impeach Putin and charge him with treason. Dmitry Boltrokov, спасибо большое, что вы ко мне сегодня присоединились. Вчера Путин объявил частичную мобилизацию русской армии. Я хотела вас спросить, Что вы думаете об этих новостях?
4: Ну, это ужасные новости. Мало того, на словах это звучит как частичное, но не надо обманываться. Если вы прочитаете сам текст указа, это фактически полная мобилизация. То есть там можно призвать кого угодно. Исключение только для тех, кто занят в военно-промышленном комплексе и я не знаю, как они собираются это логистически делать, но надо понимать, что все отговорки о том, что призывают людей с воинскими специальностями и так далее, те, кто проходил службу в армии, там у нас обязан год, Но надо понимать, что все военные кафедры, воинские специальности, годовая служба давно превратилась в такую немножко фикцию. То есть это не подготовленные люди. Абсолютно. Это абсолютно гражданские люди. И насколько я понимаю, Российская Федерация не имеет никакой системы, структуры для того, чтобы этих людей быстро обучить. То есть, я боюсь, что это такой шаг отчаяния для руководства Российской Федерации, который приведет к большим жертвам, но но как бы при этом будет еще и абсолютно бесполезен. Даже если Ну, Я отнюдь не поддерживаю всю эту операцию, но даже если говорить о том, что Российская Федерация хочет в ней как-то там победить, то это еще и бесполезный шаг.
3: И думаете, вот на эту тему верит Путин, что он вообще может как-то вот эту войну, как бы эту спецоперацию выиграть, что он может как бы победить, или вроде бы это уже знак, что он как бы знает, что он сейчас как бы теряет?
4: Сложно сказать. Тут две. Я вижу две версии. Первый, он живет в неком своем мире и верит э, тем данным, которые, например, сегодня озвучил министр обороны, что потери российской армии там, 6 с небольшим тысяч погибших, Украинская армии 60 тысяч. Но тогда возникает вопрос к наличию вообще логического мышления. Если. Э, мы малыми силами фактически уничтожили половину украинской армии, зачем нам мобилизация? Либо, да, это некий шаг отчаяния, когда понимают, что ну какие-то последствия их деяния будут, и единственный шанс да, объявить мобилизацию, а вось как-то что-то удастся победить два варианта, мне сложно сказать, какой из них на самом деле реализуется. Я думаю, что когда начинали, абсолютно точно было убеждение, что победят Украину там за 2-3 дня, что население будет встречаться цветами. То есть это явно, ну, как бы недостаток информации, неправильное информирование.
3: И вы депутат, вы как бы работаете, ну как бы имеете дело с как бы с местным населением Петербурга. По вашему, россияне как к этому отреагировали вообще? Как бы боятся люди или вроде бы?
4: Я не ну как бы бояться Я не слышал ни одного положительного отклика по происходящему А вот сегодня в 9 утра, когда Путин начал выступать, объявил частично мобилизацию, я вот стоял в кафе и прямо моему спутнику сказал, объявлена мобилизация, люди начали, другие люди в очереди, начали сразу обсуждать, что, что же это творится, какой ужас. То есть я не вижу никакой общественной поддержки, ну, кроме там пропагандистов.
3: Угу. И может быть такая ситуация, что будет какие-то протесты или как бы думаете, что вот такое вообще может быть?
4: Возможно, но вот на сегодня на вечер уже анонсированы митинги в крупных городах. Посмотрим, сколько людей выйдет. Но при этом надо понимать, что люди очень боятся. А, то есть вот очень много людей приватно говорят, что поддерживаем вас там вот с обращением по отставке Путина там мы все поддерживаем, но сказать никто вот публично не может. Это прям массово.
3: Да, конечно, большой риск для любого человека.
4: Ну вот Э-э. да. Я не думаю, что прямо за сегодня вот наступит такое сознание, что э, альтернатива быть э, там, на линии фронта. Я думаю, что еще какое-то время пройдет для того, чтобы люди осознали это.
3: Понятно, спасибо. Это как бы тоже очень эм, как бы, э, хорошо приводит к тому, что я тоже хотела вас. Спросить насчёт суда, который вы испытывали в прошлом, на прошлой неделе. Вот Это вроде бы ваш уже второй штраф эм, за то, что вы... Э, ну, вас эм, затащили в суд за дискредитацию органов власти. Э, 400... Э, ой, извините. 40, 44 тысячи рублей вас заштрафовали. Это уже вроде бы ваш второй штраф. Я хотела спросить, м- могли бы вы как бы описать... Как вот суд прошел? вот Как вы себя чувствовали? Что произошло в, на суде?
4: Ну, Суд на самом деле произвел тягостное впечатление, потому что а, в протоколе, даже ну, в вот, таком, скажем так, важном для полицейских, они умудрились наделать тьму ошибок, а, вплоть до указания неверного адреса, где все происходило так и не написали, а в чем собственно состояла дискредитация органов власти, потому что приложили видео на котором депутаты стоят на крыльце и фактически ну как бы вся дискредитация с моей стороны была в том, что я поднял руку за решение. Вряд ли в каком-то но ну, разумном мире это можно считать за дискредитацию. Я, как депутат, обязан голосовать либо за решение, либо против, но, тем не менее, все наши доводы были отвергнуты. бы суд не стал ни с чем разбираться. Присудили штраф. Понятно, что будем обжаловать. Вот вчера буквально с адвокатом читали собственно, мотивировочную часть. Тоже очень-очень много вопросов, много ошибок. Если бы это было не политическое дело, то протокол с таким количеством ошибок отменяется сразу и вот абсолютно точно. Но в данном случае это... ну, Мы знаем, что это политическое дело, потому что прямо в материалах дела есть донос от главы района, который так и пишет. Депутаты собираются проголосовать за решение о просьбе рассмотреть возможность импичмента Путину. ФСБ, МВД, пожалуйста, примите меры. По сути, вот как бы такой явно политический заказ.
3: Угу, угу. Вот эти ошибки, которые вы описываете, по-вашему, это они как бы специально сделанные ошибки, или это как бы уже просто вот, ну, не знаю? Как
4: да, они очень торопились, то есть э, нас приглашали в отделение полиции смс-сообщениями в одиннадцать вечера, мы посмотрели по номеру телефона, выяснили, что это целый... Подполковник полиции, то есть представляете масштаб переполоха, когда на следующий день после решения в одиннадцать вечера подполковник полиции с личного телефона рассылает СМСки, чтобы мы пришли к 9 утра на составление протокола. Ну, то есть они просто очень спешили и, видимо, все ляпы идут отсюда.
3: Uh-huh, uh-huh, понятно. И у меня к вам последний тоже вопрос. Вот даже то, что вы сейчас со мной разговариваете, это вроде бы вам эм, у- угрожает как бы риском для вас. Риск вроде бы небольшой. Yeah, да, и я просто хотела спросить вот для зрителей вы можете как бы объяснить тоже, почему вы э, как бы не, не бросаете эту тему, почему для вас так важно продолжать в том, что вы сейчас делаете?
4: Я вижу в происходящем большую угрозу для моей страны. Я как бы, хочу жить в этой стране. И ну, то, что в моих силах, я пытаюсь сделать. Тем более, но ну, если бы я был просто гражданин, может быть, можно было бы занять позицию промолчать. Не поддерживать, но молчать. Но я депутат, за мной 80 тысяч жителей района, которые в том числе обращаются, просят высказывать позицию. И ну, я стараюсь это делать, насколько это возможно. Так же, как и мои коллеги.
3: Ну, спасибо, Дмитрий Больтруков. Очень было приятно с вами эту тему обсудить.
0: Liz Truss has this week said that she's fine being unpopular, if that's what it takes to grow Britain's economy. It comes with the government defended alleged plans to remove a cap on bankers' bonuses, as well as plans to cut stamp duty leaked to the papers. What does Truss's plan for the economy mean for her premiership? I'm joined now by our political editor James Forsyth and assistant editor Isabel Hardman. Isabel, James, thank you for joining the Week in 60 Minutes. Now, politics is back this week. James, how has Liz Truss kicked things off?
5: So Liz Truss has gone to the UN General Assembly in New York, where she's made a speech emphasizing lots of the themes that she she talked about when she was Foreign Secretary, about reducing dependence on autocratic regimes, how the free world needed to be stronger economically so that it can stand up to uh, Russia and China. She's also talked about domestic politics while she's there, and in some ways, these are the first kind of interviews she's given since becoming PM. Obviously, because she, she was silent during the, the period of national mourning, and she said, "Look, that she's a prime minister who's prepared to do unpopular things to get economic growth going." She has, uh, you know, robustly defended her plan to remove the cap on bankers' bonuses. Uh, I think it's become quite clear from her comments as well that they are looking at some action on stamp duty uh, in the, the fiscal event on Friday, and. Uh, I think she is trying to say that she is a kind of growth prime minister. Um, one former cabinet minister said, you know, David Cameron used to say that you could sum up his priorities in three letters NHS. Liz Truss is trying to say that you can sum up her, her priorities in three letters GDP.
0: Isabel, on that trip, Liz Truss uh, appeared to rule out the prospect of a UK-US trade deal anytime soon. Does that come as much of a surprise?
6: Not really. I mean, in terms of the the actual policy, I think uh, no one was really expecting it uh, to be uh, drawn up and signed off anytime uh, soon. Uh, not least because Joe Biden has made clear that um, that he's not going to contemplate something like that. Um, when he's so worried about the UK government's direction over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, But also domestically, it doesn't uh, really work for the US to be um, signing trade deals with anyone uh, at the moment. I think what was a surprise was Liz Truss, who has been in the past, and you've written about this, Katie, uh, quite the most gung-ho, I think, um, of uh, senior Conservatives about the prospects for the US-UK trade deal, to the extent that she irritated... um, Uh, colleagues in Downing Street uh, when she was International Trade Secretary, Um, I, I, I think it's surprising that she's admitted that.
0: And James, when it comes to, I suppose, the the formation of Liz Truss's government, a lot of this was put on pause uh, because of the Queen's passing. Um, But we have had um, the final junior ministerial appointments made this week. And there are quite a few unhappy Tory MPs, um, not such a rare sighting in recent years, uh, complaining it's all about loyalty and they've been left on the sidelines. Is she storing up trouble for the months to come?
5: Yes, if there are some Sunak supporters appointed to the government, you know, Jacob Young, Claire Coutinho. But when you look through the whole government ranks, you know, it is clearly very heavily uh, based on those people who backed Liz Truss, either in the parliamentary rounds or once it got to, to, to the membership stage. And I think that there is a, a, the, the, the view in, uh, in, kind of in Truss's Downing Street is, look, we've only got two years, and they think they've got to do a lot of stuff to get, to get the economy moving, to build a case for re-election. And so they have gone for a government where they think that you won't have decisions held up by ministers saying, well, I'm not sure about this or I'm not sure about that. I think mean, they want to go hell for leather and they're trying to pick a, 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 a government that can help them do that. Uh, I also think they want quite a lot of freedom of manoeuvre. Uh, and I mean, you see that actually in Liz Russell's decision to say that she's not expecting a trade deal with the US anytime soon. I mean, that is designed to say, look, don't think that on the Northern Ireland protocol you can say to me, oh, if you do this or do that, you're going to harm the chance of a trade deal. So I think she is trying to give herself maximum room for manoeuvre on a whole series of these issues. I think mean, the question becomes, you know, how... you. Know, if you don't build out at this point, I don't think it's going to be a problem uh, in any way early doors, because I also think that, you know, Tory MPs know that there is an election only two, way, two years away. I think where it gets difficult is if the government hits a sticky patch, you haven't done much to, 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 to reach out. Uh, and that is the risk she's running. But I think, as you can see in our whole approach to government, she is going for a high risk, high reward approach.
0: Um, now, Isabel, you've interviewed the shadow health secretary, Wes Streeting, in the magazine this week. And we've also, as part of uh, Liz Truss's government's push to say they are doing something, they're uh, getting on with the job, uh, Therese coffee has been uh, announcing some of her plans, um, the new health secretary, which includes the idea everyone should be, get, be able to get an appointment within two weeks. How does she plan to do that?
6: Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the... Uh, James mentioned... Um, David Cameron summing up his priorities as NHS. And uh, I think NHS are probably the letters um, that are Liz Truss's greatest problems. Uh, we've got more letters being added by Therese Coffey. She wants to uh, solve the ABCDDs, uh, which is uh, catchy. And uh, as part of that, that's the uh, the GP appointments uh, that you mentioned. Um, there are various ways in which she's is planning to um to achieve this uh, partly through um a uh, a cloud-based phone system um which will reduce the need for um you know anyone who's tried to get a gp appointment on the day knows what it's like phoning up at 8 a.m um being stuck waiting or hearing that busy tone while also you know it's not a particularly convenient time of day for, for a lot of people who are trying to get out the door to work or who are on a, a train already and don't particularly want to discuss uh uh with the um the receptionist why they need an appointment on the day and so on. Um so that should that's one of the ways in which um uh she's hoping uh that it will make it slightly more um user friendly, I think. Um uh and that's something that Wes Streeting also highlighted in um my interview with him that Uh, He doesn't want to be somebody who represents the producer interests in the health service. And indeed, he talked a lot about his own experience um, as someone who's uh, been treated in the past couple of years for kidney cancer, of seeing a system that is set up with the system in mind, not the patient in mind. And that, you know, he spent quite a long time having to trail around the hospital uh, to find a form that was going to be put on some blood tests that he was having when it should really have been the, the the hospital that was able to produce that form um, for him rather than him getting stuck up in this sort of web of bureaucracy. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of uh, chat about how to make the health service work for patients and um, but of course you know however you streamline things um and however quickly somebody gets uh, an appointment in primary care if they're not then able to move on to uh, an acute setting if they need it um including elective treat elective surgery and so on then um then that's not really going to address uh, the uh, the growing public dissatisfaction with the NHS um which You know, history suggests uh, the public don't tend to lay at the door of uh, nurses and doctors. They blame the politicians.
0: Now, the biggest event of the week is on Friday and we're recording uh, today's episode on Thursday, the day it goes out. But James, when we're looking ahead to that mini budget, which might really not be so mini after all, uh, we know that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng want to show that they are going for growth. That is the core strategy of this government when it comes to meeting all its spending commitments. But... Is there a chance that when they announce these various measures, and you mentioned some of them, so the idea floated that there could be a stamp duty cut, and there's also talk of, of course, um, scrapping the CAF on bankers' bonuses, um, that there could be some market reaction. There's already warnings uh, that uh, this is unsustainable. So what are the potential problems?
5: So I think one risk is that that people say, look, there's no OBR forecasts. Um, You've already got the IFS warning that debt is on an unsustainable footing. And that you know the u k you end up with with sterling going down and guilt yields are uh, going up that that is a that is a danger i think the other danger is politically you know there are there are even some ministers worry that you know when your first impression is you know here we go in terms of you know we're gonna uh, cancel an increase in the tax on, on large corporations' profits. We're going to uh, remove a cap on bankers' bonuses. You know, is, that, is, is that what you want your introduction to the public to be? Now, I think Liz and quasi kwazis view is that the most important thing is for the Tories to reassert their... Low tax pro-growth credentials. And, but I think one of the crucial things to understand is they, they want their dividing line of Labour not to be the deficit as it was for David Cameron and George Osborne, but they want it to be tax cuts. Now Labour will say tax cuts for whom? You know, who is going to benefit from these tax cuts? But I think this trust and quasi-quasi want to have that argument. And I think that is and so I think how that plays out is gonna be one of the key things of uh, the next few weeks. I mean I think this is also a test of something that you've written about, Casey, which is Liz Truss is very convinced that these Red Wall voters who turned to the Tories for the first time in 2019, you know, they want distinctively conservative policies. And so she thinks they are, they are, they are going to like this budget. I think the question becomes... Uh, this is the test of that. You know, is that the right analysis? Because Labour are going to go after it for the fact that you know, there isn't a new windfall tax on the energy companies who are making such huge profits at the moment because uh, of what's happened to, to prices in the wake of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but they're, they're, they're removing the cap on bankers' bonuses at a time when, when lots of other workers are facing real-terms pay cuts. So you're going to see a kind of classic left-right ding-dong after this statement on Friday.
0: And just finally, Isabel, um, you mentioned those comments from Liz Truss on that trip where she was saying, you know, she's prepared to be unpopular. Is that what it takes to grow the economy? It's obviously quite easy to say you're prepared to be unpopular. um, But do you think history shows that prime ministers tend to cope with it well when it actually happens?
6: No, I mean, no no politician uh, is engineered uh, to enjoy being unpopular. Uh, you know, the, their whole sort of life cycle involves them trying to get people to like them. So it's, it's very difficult for them to really personally relish uh, being unpopular. And the person she models herself on, Margaret Thatcher, Would get very uh, upset and shaken um, when the public were were turning against her, um, and when she uh, seemed when decisions she was making or ideas that she had um, uh, threatened her popularity. Indeed, there were some things that she sort of you know drew back from because she was worried about the uh, response of the electorate. And I think there's a difference if you look back at Thatcher. There's a difference. Uh, between people getting angry with her who wouldn't have agreed with her anyway, um, you know, the left. um, And I think at the moment we're in a place where both Liz Truss and Keir Starmer are quite happy with the dividing lines um, between the two of them, particularly uh, on energy policy. You know, she's completely unashamed about not going for a windfall tax and she's very happy to explain why she's not going for a windfall tax. Keir Starmer is very happy that she's not gone for a windfall tax and he can talk about how this is, you know, her being on the side of big business and so on and so forth. Um, So there's that. And then there's actually the the people who she wants to back her Um uh liking her or not the electorate and uh, you know you, you might have a few months um six months uh, where things are very bumpy in the polls but there comes a point where any prime minister and of course the the party machine around them starts to get very nervous uh if voters are still cross with them and an election is looming and this is the the problem uh, with the time frame in which Liz Truss is, is operating that she doesn't actually have that much time in which to be unpopular. It's not like the start of the, you know, the coalition uh, where we had the Fixed Terms Parliaments Act and they'd only just uh, come in after a general election. Um, so there were, you know, five years uh, for them to be unpopular and then to move on. She's really got 18 months and that's, um, that's not easy at all. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James.
0: Violence has broken out between Hindus and Muslims in cities like Leicester and Birmingham. John Connolly, The Spectator's news editor, says in a piece this week that the trouble started in August when India defeated Pakistan in the cricket. To explain more, he joins the show now. John, thanks for joining Spectator TV this week. Can you start by explaining when the violence between Muslims and Hindus broke out?
7: Yeah, of course, and thank you for having me on. Um, So it all kind of kicked off properly at the end of August, on the 20th of August, when a cricket match took place, uh, not in England, but in Dubai between India and Pakistan. Uh, India won the match and basically shortly afterwards in Leicester on Melton Road, a load of young Hindu men came out on the streets. A lot of them had uh, Indian flags. Um, Apparently this is quite a common thing in Leicester, whoever wins the India cricket, India-Pakistan cricket match, the, the winning side tends to come out and celebrate. Um, and sort of blocks off the road with cars and that kind of thing. Um, but what happened this time is it kind of turned a bit nasty afterwards. Um, a fight broke out. Um, someone has been arrested on suspicion of assaulting an emergency worker. And that was kind of the trigger point, even if even if the tensions didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and sort of in the days after that, in the, in the sort of week after, in early September, there were a couple more incidents um, that the police are currently investigating. Um, basically, nothing has been completely confirmed at this stage, but they're kind of... The rumours and what's spreading online certainly seems to be the case, although we can't verify that. Is that kind of uh, individuals have, have been sort of targeted by people of the opposite faith in in gangs of young men? There are also videos coming around of sort of gangs of people running around the sort of the streets and terraces of Leicester, and all this kind of bubbled away and and, and was looking quite nasty. Um, but then we kind of saw a break just just before the Queen died, actually, on the eighth of September. Um, around then, and it all seemed to die down a bit at that point. And we had a sort of just over a, a week or so where things had calmed down. It seemed like Leicester police had it all under control, until that is, last Sunday, um, when it when it all kicked off again essentially, and a, a Hindu protest started. Um, that seemed to be followed by Muslims coming out on the street as well. And basically, there was, a, there was a huge standoff in the streets of Leicester with bottles thrown. The police really struggling to control the situation, and the whole thing looking looking quite dire.
0: Now, John, the local MP, Claudia Webb, has blamed right-wing elements. Um, Is there any evidence uh, to support the idea that this is um, stoking some of the conflict?
7: No, not that I've seen at all, to be honest. I mean, it it seems to me that the problem is sort of videos and stories getting passed around within specific communities. So, for example, in the Hindu community, they'll be saying, oh, um, a a Hindu man was targeted by Muslims and vice versa on the other side. And this is kind of what's stoking up tensions. Um, The the flip side of this as well is that clearly some violent incidents are taking place. So it's kind of this sort of quite a toxic mix of violence actually taking place. Then there's all rumours of other violence taking place. And all of this is escalating where people are saying, well, lots of young men are saying definitely like we can't just let this be, we have to go out and get revenge or escalate or go protect our people on the streets, and that's kind of leading to more violence. So a, a positive seems to be that Leicester police kind of seem to have gotten back control of the situation. Since Sunday, there's been no reported incidents. Um, but the obvious risk is that this flares up again, because even the smallest incident can, can turn, into, turn into violence and disorder, essentially.
0: And you mentioned some of the things the police are doing. Is there much uh, finding that the British government can do in terms of stepping in here?
7: I'm not short sure about this. I think a heavy police presence is, is probably the best thing. Um, the reality is is that the community tensions are, are, are pretty dire at the moment and you know th- these are problems that India has seen, for example. It's not the kind of thing that's easy easy to sort out. So I think the most they can do is, is keep the police on the streets. I mean there was talk that some of the reason there might have been more difficulties on Sunday was that lots of Leicester police were down in London for the Queen's funeral. Um, I think anything that reduces police numbers in the areas is is a bad idea at the moment and as well um, police forces in other Midlands areas should do the same because I think we've seen as well that it's it's possibly not going to be just contained in Leicester at the moment.
0: And John last question ultimately you've been speaking to residents in Leicester what is the mood like there is there a sense of panic across the area or does it feel as though this is in very specific areas?
7: Um, there's a lot of an ease. I think um, a lot of this violence is actually spread over quite a couple of areas in East and East North, sort of North Leicester. Um, I think there's a lot of people are feeling a lot of fear at the moment. I think that especially applies to the older generation and people who are more likely to wear religious dress, that they're going to be targeted by someone of the other faith. There's also a lot of anger about these young men who are who are causing a huge amount of trouble and, and a lot of anger towards that from both people inside both communities. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a great situation at the moment, to be honest. Um, we can only hope that it, it kind of doesn't kick off again. Thank
0: you, John. Thanks for joining Spectator TV today. And finally, while the government has been reluctant to put a price on Liz Truss's promise to freeze gas prices, which some have predicted cost as much as 150 billion, she could have some elements moving in her favour when the government finally gets round to doing the sums. Kate Andrews joins me now to talk through why some believe this could be cheaper than first estimated. Kate, in this week's magazine, Julian Jessup writes that Liz Truss's energy policy could be one of the most expensive in history, or not that at all. Uh, Can you explain
8: why? So Julian Jessup is an independent economist, but as we learned in the magazine a few weeks ago, he's also been one of the three economists who was feeding in to the Liz Truss campaign, advising her economic policy. And I think there's a sense uh, that there's still a lot of influence there. His work is certainly influential when it comes to the Truss government's economic thinking. And his argument in the magazine this week is an optimistic one. He's saying, look, if you look at the way that gas prices are going, especially in recent weeks, there's been a big fall in the wholesale price of gas. This would suggest that when it comes time to actually tally up that bill for the energy price guarantee, which will see the average household in the UK roughly have a cap around £2,500 per year for their energy bill, it may not actually cost the government as much as people are currently speculating because we've had such a plummet in gas prices. Now, of course, the difficulty here, it's difficult for the government, it's difficult for us, is any kind of prediction because we simply don't know what's going to happen to gas prices. There are reasons to be optimistic, as he points to in the magazine, but we don't know how this winter is going to pan out with governments across Europe pledging to to essentially cap energy prices, use price controls, also pledging that there aren't going to be blackouts. There is still going to be a real rush on gas and electricity this winter. So it's it's difficult to say exactly what's going to happen to prices. The argument that the government's roughly used so far is that we can't really put costs on this because it, we just simply don't know how much it's going to cost overall. But of course, they could be doing scenarios. We could have a scenario if gas prices were to have. We could have a scenario if gas prices were to double. Uh, speculation, conservative speculation, before we actually knew what the policy was for households and businesses, which has turned out to be a lot more generous than people thought it was going to be, was that this scheme could be anywhere between 150 and 200 billion pounds over two years. Julian Jessup's argument in the magazine is it could be well lower, but even if it were half that, we'd still be looking at something like the cost of the entire furlough scheme. So in terms of peacetime, we're still talking about one of the biggest handouts and subsidies possibly in, in the British government's history. And Kate, why is
0: the wholesale price of gas falling? Do we do we know that?
8: So. Countries like Germany have done a very good job, much better than we thought, in actually getting uh, their reserves up. Germany's reserves for gas are now around 90%. And there was real concern, especially when Russia started turning off the taps uh, earlier on in this conflict uh, as uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine, that Europe was really going to struggle to get supplies. But it does seem to be that things are slightly evening out. But what we don't know, since governments have brought in very generous policies to essentially cap prices for consumers, and now in the UK for businesses for at least six months as well, is whether or not anyone's going to change their energy habits. I think this is actually a really important point because everyone's talking about sort of how households now have this cap of 2,500 pounds. Well, the cap is actually on the unit price of energy, uh, which is going to be less than half the wholesale price. So there's a huge subsidy going on, the government, the taxpayer, picking up so much of that bill. But if you use more energy this winter, your bill is going to be higher, obviously, than somebody who doesn't um, because it, the cap is on that unit price, not on the official figure that you're going to pay. So I think the big question is, have these policies been designed in a way that will still encourage us to safely and responsibly tone down what we use this winter, to use slightly less, to turn off more lights, to maybe have the heating on for uh, an hour less a day if we're in a household that would allow for us to safely do that? If people continue to use the same amount of energy as they did last year, or indeed if they use more energy because of these subsidies, then we could be in for a real headache when it comes to supply. I mean, supplies are still much more limited than they were before this war started. But we have been seeing countries that we were so worried about, like Germany, making up for that supply elsewhere, which is giving us a bit more optimism that actually there will be enough supply to get through the winter. And yet,
0: Kate, the Prime Minister, Liz Truss, has made it pretty clear that she's not going to be suggesting to the public they reduce um, how much energy they use or ration um, in any way. So do you think people might personally make that choice based on the fact the bills will still be more expensive this year than last year?
8: Well, the government's line here is interesting because on the one hand, Liz Truss has said there will be no energy rationing this winter. Now, I take some issue with this just on a technical point. I mean, all energy is rationed the way that we currently use energy. You know, We use the price mechanism to ration. What she really means is there'll be no mandated rationing that's coming from the state. The state is not going to tell you that you can only use a certain amount of supply. Um, Is she making herself a hostage to fortune here? Possibly, because if supplies dwindle, and you know we're talking about global supply chains here, something that a domestic government doesn't necessarily have a lot of power over, um, you know she could find herself in a very difficult position where she might have to U-turn on that, especially because she's gone for price controls and decided to, um, let's say, fudge the extent to which people really understand um, the, uh, the market signals about how much supply we have. That being said, uh, there does seem to be suggesting that there's going to be a public campaign about how one can reduce their energy bills this winter. So there is acknowledgement from the government that, again, those who are in a safe position to do so, who won't be harming themselves, putting their health at risk or their family's health at risk, who can wean some of their energy usage, who can pull that back a little bit. It does seem like there could be some public messaging, um, although there's also nervousness in the trust government. I hear that that could be too nanny state. So I think there's a bit of an internal battle going on as to what extent they want to encourage the public to change their behaviour this winter.
0: And for those who perhaps either don't want that campaign or don't want to wait for it, I would highly recommend uh, reading Lionel Shriver's column from a few months ago, where she gave her own tips on reducing uh, energy bills, something she's been doing for some time. And she also gave an interview on Spectator TV. Um, And just finally, Kate, um, When Liz Truss announced this, lots of people said, oh, this is a much bigger intervention than we expected. Um, Some said it went against her no handouts, comments during the leadership campaign. But how does it stack up when we compare it to what other countries uh, across Europe are doing?
8: So she has very much followed what some other European countries have done. I mean, France decided long before the UK did that they were essentially going to cap costs for their consumers. Um, It certainly does go against her no handouts comments at the start of the campaign. But to be fair, she seemed to backtrack from those very quickly, even during the campaign. I think there is wide acknowledgement, regardless of your economic beliefs, your ideological beliefs, that in order to get through this winter, there was going to have to be support, especially for the most vulnerable households. The question has always been not whether or not you give out that support, but exactly how you go about doing it. I think what's still, to me, most surprising about the policy that Trust came up with is just how not free market it is. I mean, Price controls are just sort of bread and butter socialist policy, the fact that she's removed uh, market indicators, uh, the fact that, frankly, this is going to be a, a huge top up for the wealthiest households and those who have the biggest households. Uh, this was not targeted support. This was massive universal support, which she has pledged for households for two years, for businesses at six months. And then it gets a little gray as to who will be receiving the support and who won't. We're getting huge tax announcements, we're getting huge supply side side reforms from the trust government, and they wanted a policy which essentially protected them to give them the space to talk about tax, to talk about her other public policy proposals without being accused every day of why aren't you caring about energy bills, why aren't you doing more for vulnerable households? She certainly achieved that because I think it's near impossible for Labour or any other party to say that she hasn't gone far enough. She's gone very, very far. The question to come back around to Julian Jessup's argument is, will this prove to be a 150 £200 billion package for which she has not even attempted to cost those figures, all of which will be thrown onto the debt? Or is it possible that we're going to get lucky? Global supply chains are going to work in our favour. The gas price will continue to fall and this will be a very expensive policy, but perhaps not as expensive as uh, speculation uh, currently uh, is suggesting. Thank you,
0: Kate. Thanks for joining us today. That's it for this week. Once again, thanks to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in 60 Minutes. They will provide you with the expertise you need to help build your wealth with confidence. Visit candowealth.com for more information. And don't forget to subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.